Stocks are plunging as the economy falters. But you're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This here is David Hansen. It is Tuesday, David, and we're winding down. We're winding down the clock. Tomorrow is the 100th episode of Where the Money Is. It came along so fast. Ryan Seacrest will be here counting us down. Will he? Right? Maybe. He's probably watching. Ryan, I thought I heard that Ryan, somewhere. if you're watching right now, come on you, out. You, you can host the 100th show tomorrow. But we do still have the competition going on. That competition is to win a limited, very limited edition WTMI sweatshirt. All you have to do is tweet us at, team, uh, at TMF Financials, find us on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services, or email us, WTMIFool.com, and tell us why you love where the money is. We're going to pick out the most creative and or foolish response, and they'll get the t-shirt, awesome. or the sweatshirt, sorry. Um, David, I, I, I got to bring this up before we start. Philip Seymour Hoffman passed away the other day, very sad circumstances. I'm going to ask you here, what is your favorite? He, I mean, he was just such a great, great actor. What's your favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman movie? Along Came Polly, Sandy Lyle. <laughs> you got to go with Along Came Polly. I think oh, it won Best Picture. He, he probably should have won Best Actor for it. I don't think he did, but Sandy Lyle. What about you? I, I'm, this isn't my favorite movie that he did. I mean, Capote was amazing. He was amazing in Capote. But there's, there's a little-known Philip Seymour Hoffman movie called Love, Liza. In terms of performances, if, if, if a performance is meant to move you in some way, I was depressed for weeks after watching this movie. So if, if acting is about creating emotion, he nailed it there because um, I, was, I was on the brink after seeing that performance. On that note, very exciting. let's get to some other depressing stuff, and that is this first headline, which says, this is New York Times, as recovery looks weak, stocks take a deep dive. How much worse does it get than that? I mean, deep dive. The S&P is down 5.2% so far this year. And yesterday, the drop was the worst drop since last June. Whoa. <laughs> Does it get worse than that? I don't know if it gets worse than that. And you mentioned in the intro that the economy or the recovery is faltering. They said the recovery is so slowing down. I said it. New York Times said it. That's the, my two sources of authority <laughs> there. Uh, but I, I don't really see that as the case. I mean, we saw third quarter GDP reading was very positive. The latest or the first reading for fourth quarter was very positive. I think this is just more of multiples on stocks are coming back to earth a little bit. Maybe they weren't crazy high, but that's what's going on here. It's not really businesses that are suffering at the core. It's just that people aren't willing to pay the same prices as they were before. Here's the great thing about stock market media coverage. It's that there's always something going on. The stock market's always doing something. Mm -hmm. And they're always going to be looking for ways to describe what the stock market is doing. Yesterday... There was a, a, factories, a, a factory orders report, I believe is what, what it was, and there, a lot of these news articles were saying, well, because of the weak factory orders, that's why the market was off so much. That's yeah. what I think about that. It's, no, it's, it's trying to explain essentially the unexplainable. Sometimes the market moves just because it's moving. Uh, as far as the weak economic numbers, I don't think it's that crazy to be laying them at the feet of the cold weather. I mean, I know for myself in January, I didn't want to do anything except stay inside where it was warm, right. except for when my heat broke for a weekend, and then I wanted to be anywhere else but inside my apartment. But yeah, I think the cold weather could legitimately have had an impact on these numbers. And looking ahead to Friday, to the jobs report that's coming up Friday, I think that'll probably have an impact on that as well. 
It's possible. But I, I really think it's just that multiples in the market change. And this is a good reminder. I mean, in 2013, you... I said it yesterday, you basically could have bought any stock and the multiple would have gone up, earnings were pretty solid, and you would have had a good year. I think this is a good reminder that you have to be aware of what you're paying for with the business. Any, every business has a, an appropriate price. You can't just buy it at whatever. Not going back multiples to the Nifty 50? I'm not going back to that. I think multiples matter. Just be aware of it. I'm not saying that they're crazy and they're going to go lower. Just be aware of what you're buying. Second headline. Second headline. This seems very similar to what we talked about yesterday. U.S. banks ease loan standards in Fed survey as demand rises. Now, we talked about the OCC survey yesterday, and now this is the survey that the Fed conducts to senior loan officers around the country, and they said pretty much the same thing that we talked about yesterday. It was pretty much the same thing. Uh, I saw a lot of the same themes through through this survey. Um, One one of them, it's uh, taking in its totality. I think the the interesting takeaway is how uh, the industry got burned by a specific thing, in large part, and that's real estate. Right. And how now, coming through this recovery, they're being so cautious on real estate, but everything else they're starting to loosen standards. I'm not saying that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Standards tighten down on a lot, of, a lot of types of loans, and as the recovery uh, moves on, we're going to want to see those, those standards loosen back up a little right. bit, a little bit, including residential real estate. But as of right now, uh, the banks are, are loosening standards on C&I loans, uh, commercial and industrial loans, credit card loans, direct consumer loans. But then in residential real estate, they're still like, ah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Right. We're, we're going to hold off. And I think when you think about just the overall risk in terms of asset classes and types of loans, it, the next crisis probably will not be because of really loose standards in residential mortgages. It may be. But it, Particularly when we look at how the banks react. I mean, if you think about it as kind of like a balloon, you grab one end and then the risk kind of goes somewhere else. They're really grabbing residential real estate. They're saying, we're not going to get burned again, <laughs> but it's probably going somewhere else. The risk will find its way into the system. It was like back in 2000 when you had that internet stock bubble and then crash, and then mm-hmm. following 2000, everybody was like, oh, well, we're not going to invest in internet stocks. That's crazy. Right. It's internet stocks go down. That's what they do. Yes. But then you've seen a lot of... Uh, a lot of the real businesses coming out of that, the, the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world, um, have actually been able to prove out business models. The same will prove true of the residential real estate market. Indeed. Third and final headline, we've got GM Ford sales stall. This was actually another, this was another uh, headline sort of economic report or big picture report You're from so yesterday. Macro today. I am feeling very macro. You're huge. Big, big top down, very top down. I, I think this is, this is important for our sector from the perspective that uh, auto lending is an important part of, uh, of the banking sector. There are a lot of these big banks that are big players in, in auto lending. Ally, which is the former GMAC, uh, still the leader in, in auto lending. But Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Capital One, and Bank of America all big players, top five players in the auto auto lending sector. I don't, I, I don't want to take away too much from this one month of... of right down auto sales and again it was cold it was cold it was very it was very cold could you imagine being out shopping for a car in that weather that sounds I'm, horrible i'm just saying that's like the the last thing i would want to do so I, I don't know usually when when retailers uh come out and they say oh well it was bad weather so that's why our results are down usually, eh, i don't know about that in this case yeah you know i'm, I'm kind of on the same page i don't want to be out shopping for a car in this so it doesn't surprise me that other people weren't agreed Focus for today, it is still earnings season. Feels like it'll be forever earnings season. But we've got... Uh, Almost next 
earnings season. I know it We're is. We're most in second quarter. <laughs> Not quite. Don't get ahead of yourself there, David. I'm excited. Got to get through this one. We've got four earnings reports today that we took a closer look at. What's the first uh, company you were looking at? American Capital Agency, the mortgage REIT, first of the, of course the big mortgage ones. Rate. The mortgage REITs. Of course we, the mortgage We've got to talk about them. Do you want the positives or the negatives first? Let's go, let's go negatives first. Negatives was that book value took another big hit. We saw... Exactly. <laughs> we saw the, the 10-year <laughs> Treasury rate rise. That's going to be pretty much correlated with what their securities are going to do when interest rates rise. Those fall. So we saw book value, OCI, that under the net income line, that took a hit. But they also sold a lot of securities for a loss in this quarter. And as we are filming this show right now, the conference call is going on. So I haven't been able to get on and hear comments from management in terms of why they sold so much of their portfolio. They went from around $83 billion in agency securities down to $64 billion-ish. So they sold wow. a lot of securities at a loss and took that loss on the net income line this quarter. So that where was they, a lot of Where did they move all of that? Well, they 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 have in more fifteen year mortgages than thirty years. Gotcha. They've kind of they scaled both of them back, so it's not like they're completely getting out of thirty or completely getting out of fifteen. Mm-hmm. They kind of just brought everything back. So I'd love to hear some comments, and we'll have to circle back and see what why they did that. The good news, in their opinion, was that they continue to buy back shares at a deep discount to book value. They bought back seven percent of their share count as of the last quarter till today. Uh, so pretty significant. Um, and they say, this is a no-brainer to us. We're trading at a huge discount, and we're a portfolio of very liquid securities. The agency mortgage-backed security market is the second most liquid market, basically, in the world behind mm-hmm. U.S. Treasuries. So you say, it's a liquid market. If these were individually traded out on the market, they wouldn't be at such big discounts. So we're saying, we're going to buy our portfolio back through buying back shares. It seems like a no-brainer to us. So they're going to keep doing that. i got to give a little bit of that. I, I got to give credit to that because you say it's a no-brainer. That that is such a long clap. I know it's insane. You, you say that it's such a no-brainer for them to be buying back shares right now, but for these um, for these mortgage REITs who are externally managed, the the management fee is based on shareholders' equity. So as they buy back shares, that shareholders' equity goes down. Yep. So it's not necessarily in management's best interest. So uh, and that's one of my that's one of my qualms with the uh, with the mortgage REITs is that the way that compensation works is based on uh, that shareholders' equity ca- calculation. Right. So I give credit to these mortgage REITs that in this environment are buying back shares. Uh, I think that is a shareholder friendly move. All right. What are you looking at? I've got general growth properties. This is a, a big um, equity REIT. Right. Uh, focuses on malls. Some good-looking results here. Rental rates were up year over year. Uh, the, mall, the, the mall lease rate that they have was at 97, 97.1%. That was up 100 uh, basis points over last year. So you've got uh, occupancy moving up uh, that way. Looking ahead to a good 2014, looking at uh, 11%. They're hoping for an 11% increase in funds from operations per share. Now, li- uh, listening to some of the beginning of the conference call, that one was going on as we were prepping as well. Uh, interesting commentary at the beginning of the call. Uh, they were talking about the um, e-commerce. They were talking about e-commerce and the, the threat that e-commerce poses to brick-and-mortar and mall-based retailers. Obviously, Amazon.com coming in and uh, supposedly uh, a big threat to retailers like Walmart, Best Buy, that sort of thing. What they were talking about is that actually the biggest threat that e-commerce poses is to catalog and direct uh, direct phone sales, that sort of thing. So if you go back to, I think they were talking about 1995, the, the movement has been away from catalog sales and towards e-commerce more so than away from brick and mortar and towards e-commerce. I don't know that that's... I, 
I still believe that e-commerce has more of uh, a disruptive uh, possibility for brick and mortar. But they were also talking about, and this does make sense, that a lot of customers are choosing, are, are shopping online on e-commerce and then choosing ship-to-store right. options. Um, and then they're also shopping with, uh, online with companies that have brick-and-mortar locations so that it's easier to return stuff and exchange stuff and that sort of thing. Right. So it was an interesting commentary on, on, I think, something that a lot of people take for granted, that e-commerce is taking away from brick, bricks-and-mortar retail, um, and maybe not quite as true. Right. As most people, or maybe t- not to the, to the same extent. And, and there, there are some smaller startup companies out there that are trying to utilize the footprint that all these retailers have as distribution centers. So right. instead of we, we talk about Amazon having these great Amazon Locker centers yeah. where all we have all these malls, those can be kind of used as distribution centers. So I don't think brick and mortars are just going to sit back and say, oh, Amazon, you can have everybody. So there's going to be new <laughs> ways to, to use these physical stores. Sure. Okay, Second, what's your next one? Second one is Prospect Capital. I talked about this on. Friday, that I'll be looking at it this week, they reported earnings pretty standard corner for Prospect. They've been pretty unbelievable since the downturn. Uh, in the last six years, none of their loans, and this is a BDC, business development company, that makes private loans, uh, pretty high yielding. Their portfolio yields around 13%. Mm-hmm. So these aren't your U.S. treasuries here. Uh, but none of their loans originated in the last six years are non-performing. Wow. Pretty impressive. And they have 130 long-term investments in that portfolio now. That's up from 124. So it's doing well, but the economy's doing well, and BDCs are, they make riskier loans. It's just a matter of fact. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they get higher rates, but it's, it's a riskier loan. And when the economy's doing well, there's not defaults, they're going to do well. Uh, so as long as things keep coming, coming along and humming along uh, and they make good loans, they're going to do fine. And the question is, if there's a downturn, how much is their portfolio exposed? And they do have some concentration uh, making loans to kind of riskier subprime Lenders, so they have they have an investment. Their biggest holding is a subprime lender, so mm. that pays them a big coupon. So if something happens to them, then it impacts their coupon. So you, with these companies, 130 investments, it's really hard to get your head around all of them and what they're doing. So try to understand what are they most heavily invested in, what are they most exposed to. So in short story there is that it's nice to be operating in a good economy. It is very nice for them, but also sound like savvy operators there. Yes, mm-hmm. potentially. Did you get a chance to look at how they perform? How they're uh, pre-crisis vintage loans uh, perform through the crisis? Not as well. They still do have some on their books, non-performers uh, kind of overall of assets at 0.3% of assets. So they still do have some on the books, but they've rolled off and have new investments there. Cool. Uh, the second one I looked at was Harf- Hartford Insurance. This is really still kind of a turnaround story I've going on. Uh, Hartford has the property casualty insurance, has some asset management, but they, they're getting out of the annuity business and the individual life uh, business, and it's still a process of kind of managing that away. Um, the property and casualty underwriting results look good. Uh, From an investment perspective, an interesting uh, part of the story was that they saw a good amount of income from alternative investments. This is something that we've heard uh, for a couple of quarters from uh, AIG, uh, good success investing in alternatives. Um, That added about 0.3%. to their overall uh, portfolio is yield. Is that code for just just trust us? It's it's a good investment. We're not going to tell you what it is. It's just alternative. Well, our alternatives, that's a pr- funds, private yeah. equity, he- uh, hedge funds, that sort of thing. Um, without the alternatives, uh, the overall portfolio yield fell four per- to 4% uh, on a comparable basis to 4.2% uh, this time last right. year. So it, not too surprising to see that. Looking ahead to, to next year, uh, the company is expecting core earnings. They're calling it core earnings at the midpoint of $1.7 billion, 
which is flattish to a little bit down actually from this year. Um, but it's a it's a reasonable return on equity given where the stock is trading. It's trading at a at a pretty decent uh, discount to book value. Um, Interesting in their 2014 expectations, they're only expecting the 10-year Treasury to go from 3% to 3.2%. Uh, so that's, uh, to me, that's a, a tame expectation for the, the fixed income market. But um, that's a little bit, for an insurance business, that's an, a conservative way right. to, to be budgeting. It is. Um, yeah. Cool. Mailbag. Mailbag, let's do it. Um, we have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. Send us an email. We love to answer questions and get comments and uh, everything else. Here's our question for today. Shireen asks, if you had an opportunity to buy one of your bank stocks in the cheaper price range, which one would you buy? Great question. David, I'm going to modify this a little bit. If you could take your entire, imagine you were very wealthy. You could take your entire net worth and buy one bank in its entirety, you would own this bank, what would it be? You just completely politicianized that question. You took a question you didn't want to answer, and you spun it to one you wanted. Very smart. That's what I have to say to you. All right, so I can buy any any bank outright. In its entirety. Um, She said the ones that we own, so I'm going to go with Goldman Sachs. I own it, and if I could buy one bank, I'm going to go with that to hold the returns attractive, very attractive. Mm Mm-hmm. But the business, the competitive landscape of investment banking, I think is still very attractive going forward for the next 10, 20, 30 years. If I think about just regular bricks and mortar deposits, lending banking, that's a competitive business. We're seeing online players come on. We see peer-to-peer lending starting to crop up a little bit more. But investment banking, capital markets, that's going to need to be there. That's a very sophisticated skill set that they have in terms of bringing companies public, advising on debt, very specialized. And I feel good holding that for the next rest of my life. That. This is too many too many personalities to deal with there. Owning <laughs> owning an investment bank. I, I think the one that I'm going to go with, and we're actually going to talk about this again in just a little bit. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank ticker symbol there is SIVB. It's uh, I guess it's really called SVB Corp. I believe is what what it's actually called. Uh, this is a specialty Silicon Valley uh, lender. They focus on lending to startup companies, particularly in the life sciences and technology industries. Uh, Very focused lender, great relationships with venture capital companies and with startup companies. Uh, They occupy a niche. They have, uh, I think, great competitive advantage. Um, This is a bank that I feel like is understandable, has a clear competitive advantage, and I would feel very comfortable owning that entire bank uh, from now until 20, 50 years from now. And you could live in California. I, 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 did live good. In, I did live in California. You, know, you can go back. The weather's so bad here, you can go back to there. Well, I don't know. Actually, San Francisco, the weather is not really that good. But I'm going to refute that. In, I'm sure we have someone listening in San Francisco. I think the, they can tell us the weather is better there than it is here. Yeah, but try going to San Francisco in the summer, particularly the Sunset District. Oh, my gosh. It's like rainy and cold every day. The Valley's <laughs> nice, though. I'd live in the, if, if I owned all Silicon Valley Bank, I would you live, live in the somewhere Valley. nice. I'd be living in Palo Alto. Exactly. All right, let's... From there, let's go to the game for today. We got a little bit of would you rather, easy game. We've got scenarios. You choose one or the other. And David, here is the first scenario. Would you rather be a day trader or a short seller? Tough question. I'm going to go with day trader. I don't want to be either. I really don't want to be either. You're going to go with um, day trader. Wow. Day trader, I, I, I think it's pretty much a... Chasing the money. It's flipping a coin, in my opinion, for the most part. For, for someone with my skill set, it would be flipping a coin. And I would feel better doing that than taking, going, hoping for the downside. 
with history kind of moving forward. I mean, the market's gone up historically. I don't want to be kind of swimming against the current as a short seller, if that's the only, only thing I could do. I'm, I'm going short seller because I, I feel like with short selling, uh, it's still fundamental analysis. Uh, there's still ways that you can look at the underlying companies and look for weaknesses in the management, look for the weakness in the accounting, and, and figure out uh, what companies are not well managed and therefore are. I, I wouldn't necessarily go the over, a lot of short sellers go the overvalued route. Like this, this is a high multiple, so this stock is overvalued. I would look specifically for fundamental weaknesses in management and accounting and look for those to, to impact the company long term. Uh, as a day trader, David, what would you be day trading? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what are you, you short selling? S- something with serious a, something XM. with something with a lot of trading volume. I'm not going to get caught with my pants down in something that I can't get a trade off. What about you? What are you shorting? This is like the David Einhorn, Bill Ackman short <laughs> from Mac This is your stage. This is uh, this is not my stage. I. You know, I, I'm actually, I, I'm not against the idea of, uh, you. since you brought it up, I'll just say uh, Herbalife. There's been so much, so much uh, back and forth over that. The MLM companies in general, um, it's, it's, they're questionable to me. Let me put it that way. They're questionable to me. That's not, I'm not saying anybody should go and short it. I'm not saying that I'm going to short it. I don't short stocks. Right. That's why we have this question, uh, and I haven't done the in-depth research, but... It's a business model that I think uh, can border on questionable if not executed well. Cool. Next scenario. Next scenario is, would you rather own Fannie Mae or JCPenney? We're venturing into consumer retail. Which one do you want? I, I've got to go with, this will surprise, this will surprise dedicated WTMIers. Uh, this will surprise the friends of Fannie Mae that typically listen to this show. But I'm going with Fannie Mae. I feel like I have uh, I can wrap my head around the potential for Fannie Mae more so than J.C. Penney. Uh, I also think that while you have this incredible hurdle of Congress and the president and everybody else wanting to wind down Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, <clears throat> um, if that doesn't happen, there is a place in the world for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, is there a place in the world for J.C. Penney? Is there, is there some competitive advantage that JCPenney has that makes me feel confident that, that it'll do well out into the future? I don't really know that that's the case. I, I'm more confident in the market position of Fannie Mae if it gets beyond that government hurdle. I'm unfortunately going to have to agree with you. I think you've got to go... I'm overdoing the sound. You've got to go where the earnings are. And you look at Fannie Mae, they're earning incredible returns. As a shareholder in conservatorship, you're just not entitled to that any of those returns right now, which kind of stinks as a shareholder, whether you think that's right or wrong because of the legal action and the way the conservatorship happened. Mm -hmm. It's another question. But I would feel more comfortable going to a company that's making billions of dollars in profit that, in theory, could ultimately get to me, like you said, if certain hurdles are cleared and Congress is feeling good and wants wants to give me some, then then in that case, but with JCPenney, looking at a a five-year time horizon, I... I don't feel comfortable with that. All right. And final scenario, getting back to that Silicon Valley Bank Corp. Would you rather own Silicon Valley Bank or Snapchat? So, David, going with the bank, or you going with the startup? So, I don't know if they use Silicon Valley Bank, but maybe they oh, are I don't, a startup. Yeah. I, I, uh, but uh, I'm going to go with 
Silicon Valley Bank. I got to. I mean, you look at the valuation. They turned down $3 billion, Snapchat did, from Facebook, and they have $0 in revenue. Mm -hmm. We talk about things being expensive. That's expensive. That is more expensive than Silicon Valley Vancorp trading at 2.5 times book value. I'd be much more comfortable with that than that valuation. Snapchat's interesting. You can get some weird pictures on there, but... Silicon Valley Bank lends to the lends to the startups. They also have a uh, private equity uh, or venture capital arm mm-hmm. within Silicon Valley Bank. So if you want exposure to that sector, uh, SVB gives you uh, diversified exposure to that sector without having to try to get in on, say, a Snapchat that may or may not work out. Cool. All right, finishing off on the Twitter sphere, David, what's our first tweet? First tweet's from Morgan Housel. We haven't heard from Morgan. Our own while. Morgan Housel, friend of the show. At TMF Housel, says... Per CNBC, S&P has worst start to February since 1933. Since 1933. However, they left out 1933 was the single best year for stocks in history, rising 57%. My takeaway here is that Morgan is saying the stock market will go up 57% this year. I think we should... We'll, we'll tell him that we promised that he said that to everyone. That's fair, right? You were really overdoing the sound. Well, this... I, I feel like this dollar button, I should be able to hit it over and over again to get that really satisfying cha-ching. So good... Uh, Good reminder there from Morgan. We also talked about how it's, it's also it's also what February fourth. Yeah, I can't get my I can't get the February fourth. Yeah. February fourth. Yeah. Why are we talking about the returns so far in February? Also, also a good reminder. I said on a couple months back. Also, a good reminder that that is a stupid comment. <laughs> Biggest drop in the last fifty years, nineteen eighty-seven. The market finished up that year. So, some perspective. Perspective is good. Second tweet. That's the last tweet. That's the Sorry. last tweet. We only got one tweet. Leaving you hanging. You, d- you did. You totally left me hanging. Okay. So we've got uh, our Twitter, at TMF Financials. We've got our Facebook page, Motley Fool Financial Services. Uh, and our, the WTMIers can get that free Warren Buffett special report mm-hmm. by emailing WTMIoffer at fool.com. Warren Buffett's greatest wisdom. Let's not call it a report. That sounds like school. It does like sound a Warren like Buffett like, like homework. Like treat. <laughs> so Warren Buffett dessert. Warren Buffett dessert. WTMI offer at fool.com. Well, there you go. Well, that's the show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen, and we will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.